Hi, welcome to the New Covenant Presbyterian Church Sermon Podcast, a congregation of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, the OPC, in the San Francisco Bay Area. First Kings 13. Uh, we will be reading actually the whole chapter, which is a, a slight last-minute change of plans. Please uh, give your attention to God's word. And behold, a man of God went from Judah to Bethel by the word of the Lord. And Jeroboam stood by the altar to burn incense. Then he cried out against the altar by the word of the Lord and said, O altar, altar, thus says the Lord. Behold, a child, Josiah by name, shall be born to the house of David. And on you he shall sacrifice the priests of the high places who burn incense on you. And men's bones shall be burned on you. And he gave a sign the same day, saying, This is the sign which the Lord has spoken. Surely the altar shall split apart, and the ashes on it shall be poured out. So it came to pass, when King Jeroboam heard the saying of the man of God, who cried out against the altar in Bethel, that he stretched out his hand from the altar, saying, Arrest him! Then his hand, which he stretched out toward him, withered, so that he could not pull it back to himself. The altar also was split apart, and the ashes poured out from the altar according to the sign which the man of God had given by the word of the Lord. Then the king answered and said to the man of God, Please entreat the favor of the Lord your God, and pray for me that my hand may be restored to me. So the man of God entreated the Lord, and the king's hand was restored to him and became as before. Then the king said to the man of God, Come home with me and refresh yourself, and I will give you a reward. But the man of God said to the king, If you were to give me half your house, I would not go in with you. Nor would I eat bread nor drink water in this place. For so it was commanded me by the word of the Lord, saying, You shall not eat bread nor drink water nor return by the same way you came. So he went another way and did not return by the way he came to Bethel. Now, an old prophet dwelt in Bethel, and his sons came and told him all the works that the man of God had done that day in Bethel. They also told their father the words which he had spoken to the king. And their father said to them, Which way did he go? For his sons had seen which way the man of God went who came from Judah. Then he said to his sons, Saddle the donkey for me. So they saddled the donkey for him, and he rode on it, and went after the man of God, and found him sitting under an oak. Then he said to him, Are you the man of God who came from Judah? And he said, I am. Then he said to him, Come home with me and eat bread. And he said, I cannot return with you, nor go in with you, neither can I eat bread nor drink water with you in this place. For I have been told by the word of the Lord, you shall not eat bread nor drink water there, nor return by going the way you came. He said to him, I too am a prophet, as you are. And an angel spoke to me by the word of the Lord, saying, Bring him back with you to your house, that he may eat bread and drink water. He was lying to him. So he went back with him and ate bread in his house and drank water. Now it happened as they sat at the table that the word of the Lord came to the prophet who had brought him back, and he cried out to the man of God who came from Judah, saying, Thus says the Lord, because you have disobeyed the word of the Lord and have not kept the commandment which the Lord your God commanded you, but you came back, ate bread, and drank water in the place of which the Lord said to you, Eat no bread and drink no water. Your corpse shall not come to the tomb of your fathers. So it was, after he had eaten bread and after he had drunk, that he saddled the donkey for him, the prophet whom he had brought back. When he was gone, a lion met him on the road and killed him. And his corpse was thrown on the road, and the donkey stood by it. The lion also stood by the corpse. And there men passed by and saw the corpse thrown on the road, and the lion standing by the corpse. 
Then they went and told it in the city where the old prophet dwelt. Now when the prophet who had brought him back from the way heard it, he said, It is the man of God who is disobedient to the word of the Lord. Therefore the Lord has delivered him to the lion which has torn him and killed him, according to the word of the Lord which he spoke to him. And he spoke to his sons, saying, Saddle the donkey for me. So they saddled it. Then he went and found his corpse thrown on the road, and the donkey and the lion standing by the corpse. The lion had not eaten the corpse nor torn the donkey. And the prophet took up the corpse of the man of God, laid it on the donkey, and brought it back. So the old prophet came to the city to mourn and to bury him. Then he laid the corpse in his own tomb, and they mourned over him, saying, Alas, my brother! So it was after he had buried him that he spoke to his sons, saying, When I am dead, then bury me in the tomb where the man of God is buried. Lay my bones beside his bones. For the saying which he cried out by the word of the Lord against the altar in Bethel and against all the shrines on the high places which are in the cities of Samaria will surely come to pass. After this event, Jeroboam did not turn from his evil way, but again he made priests from every class of people for the high places. Whoever wished, he consecrated him, and he became one of the priests of the high places. And this thing was the sin of the house of Jeroboam, so as to exterminate and destroy it from the face of of the earth. Amen. This is God's word. Let's pray briefly. Father, you teach us in your word to pray that our eyes might be open to behold wonderful things in your law. And so we pray and we look for your blessing. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. The story that we've just read here in 1 Kings 13 is one of the strangest narratives in all of Scripture. There's a lot going on. It's a bit complicated. The background that you need to understand is that the kingdom of Israel has just recently split in two. Solomon's uh, both unlucky and foolish son, Rehoboam, uh, mostly foolish, uh, uh, presided over the split in the kingdom. And Jeroboam, who was the uh, former servant of Solomon, whom God had uh, appointed uh, the leader of the rebellion that would split the kingdom, Uh, Jeroboam uh, launched into his new kingly leadership in a portion of the nation, not by focusing on leading the people in a humble and godly way, but by leading them both in a revolt against the earthly rule of Solomon's son and the spiritual rule of God in heaven. And he set up, just like in the book of Exodus, where Aaron presided over uh, a new form of worship with golden calves at the center of the ritual, Jeroboam set up exactly that same kind of idolatrous worship. And that's where the chapter opens. Jeroboam is actually leading, uh, or at least attending, uh, a a worship service at one of these golden calves in Bethel. And you can just imagine the finery, the splendor, the the pomp and prestige. I mean, if we had a a king or even a, you know, a mayor here this morning, we could imagine we would maybe have dressed up nice and that sort of thing. And that's That's the air of the situation at the opening of this chapter. And then uh, we are surprised, as I'm sure everyone is surprised, to hear uh, someone who who wasn't on the order of service. He wasn't a a planned participant in the proceedings. He is a prophet from the southern kingdom, a prophet from the faithful kingdom of Judah. And he comes up to preach a sermon, not to the people, but to the altar. And he cries out against the altar, O altar, altar! Thus says the Lord, and he prophesied that there would come a son of the house of David, 
the royal house against which Jeroboam was leading a rebellion, there would come eventually a son in that royal house. He gives his name, Josiah, even though it would be many decades before Josiah was born. Here the prophet gives his name. And he prophesied that that child would be raised up by the Lord to do what Jeroboam ought to be doing as a king, and that is to uh, lead the people towards true worship. And it would be Josiah's accomplishment to undo all the work that Jeroboam was doing. Jeroboam had an altar built. Josiah would have an altar destroyed. Jeroboam had a priesthood ordained. Uh, Josiah would actually kill those priests and offer their dead bodies on the altar as a way of defiling this holy place so that it would never be used for worship again. Needless to say, that's a, a quite scandalous thing to, to bring into church. If someone were to talk that way in church here, uh, you'd probably think they weren't very polite. Uh, but being a prophet and being polite often didn't have much to do with each other. So that's one little thing that we learn here. And everyone's horrified, mostly King Jeroboam, and he is, is furious. And in his zeal for this false worship, he orders the uh, prophet to be seized and arrested. Can you believe these impious, ungodly, you know, irreverent prophets? Here they are interrupting worship. Isn't that so terrible? But the, uh, the moment at which Jeroboam called for this prophet's arrest was when the prophet not only gave a word about the future, but also a word about the present. Sometimes it's easy to say things about the future because no one can predict or, or prove you wrong. You know, if I were to say 500 years from now, such and such a thing will happen, none of you will live long enough to say that I'm wrong for sure. But if I were to say such and such a thing will happen in the future, and in order to prove that I know what I'm talking about, I'm going to do something right in front of your eyes, then, then we have something that you can really see validating the, the prophecy. And that's the point here. So Jeroboam says, in order to help you believe this word from God about the distant future, here's a sign from God now. And the sign will be that the altar will, by the hand of God, be torn in two and the ashes poured out and the whole thing will be ruined. And that's the moment Jeroboam stretches out his royal finger against this prophet and calls for his arrest. And then a sign, a second sign occurs that nobody was anticipating. The king's finger is stuck. He actually gets paralyzed in this position. Uh, horrifying thing to imagine that you'd not get paralyzed in at least a reasonable place. Like you'd get paralyzed like this. Oh, it's brutal. It's pretty embarrassing. His act of rebellion is frozen into a silent testimony against Jeroboam's foolishness in opposing God. And he can't even bring his finger back. And then at the very moment his finger is still stuck, the altar gets torn apart by the direct intervention of God, such that everybody's seeing, both personally in the king and nationally in the king's religious apparatus, the judgment of God signed and signified right in front of their eyes. So that these words of prophecy about the distant future are, are vividly impressed on them. There's going to come a royal son of the house of David who will restore true worship among God's people. Now, what do you do in this situation? Well, Jeroboam does at least one little reasonable thing. He calls out to the prophet and says, would you, would you please pray for me? Well, it's, you know, it's, that's progress. That's good. Now, the question is, is it the real progress that uh, true repentance would involve? Or is it the kind of progress that Moses experienced when he was dealing with Pharaoh? Because remember, Pharaoh, he also prayed, Moses, would you please, you know, pray for me. These gnats are really ruining my life. And uh, we find out in the course of the narrative that uh, Jeroboam uh, 
uh, really is issuing that kind of regret, the, the ungodly sorrow over mere the, the consequences of sin, not the true repentance that arises from grief over the sin itself. What's the point here? Well, we have a stubborn king who meets with a word of judgment on the nation and on himself personally, a word of judgment that is strengthened and validated by vivid signs so that unbelief is completely inexcusable. And what does he do with that word? A word of judgment on the the altar, a word of judgment on him personally. Well, he prays for some mercy. And God responds with another sign of mercy because God actually does heal his hand. And that particular combination is a wonderful combination from God. His severity, his holiness, his majesty, his law, his demands, his threatenings, his warnings, his judgment being impressed on us, but also seasoned and and sprinkled and flavored with a reminder that his grace is also present. That's that's the the combination of spiritual uh, impulses that ought to be present in your heart if you're a Christian, that you love to hear of God's mercy, but always in the context of God's holiness. You love to hear of his restoring grace, but always mindful of his destroying power. And that's the, the combination that is so vividly forced on Jeroboam here. What does he do with it? Well, we're not told at this point in the chapter. One last thing that happens to Jeroboam is he's, he's excommunicated. And this is a very uh, significant thing. The prophet tells him, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not going to go to your house and eat. Jeroboam, he's, uh, he's at least superficially responding to uh, this, this prophet's ministry because he says, you know, just a minute ago I was going to throw you in jail, but I'd actually much rather you come to my house and have a nice meal, right? Always a little uncertain about dining with people who wanted to throw me into jail just a few minutes earlier, but hey, maybe, maybe Jeroboam is, is up to something. But both God and the prophet that he sent were ready for this. They anticipated this. And God had given the prophet very clear instructions. Don't you eat or drink with anybody. In other words, you are not to act as if you are in spiritual fellowship with these people. God was showing love and mercy to them by sending a prophet. Remember, God sent a prophet to the Ninevites, Jonah, and he only preached judgment. He didn't preach any grace. At least it's not recorded in Scripture. But the Ninevites understood that if God wanted to kill us, he could have not sent the prophet. He could have just killed us. But sending the prophet even only with a warning message is itself an act of grace. It's so kind that God would give us this warning, and they repented. Jeroboam's in the same situation. God is not showing him here the shortcut to grace that he wanted. He wanted to just, well, let's eat and drink and pretend everything's fine. We'll have a nice friendship, a nice relationship. Maybe he wanted to kind of domesticate this prophet and tame him. And uh, like uh, Solomon says in the book of Proverbs, always be, be careful when you dine with the king. You know, if you're a gluttonous man, slit your throat before you go and dine with the king because kings have a way of using their fancy food to get what they want from you. And so this prophet says, no, no, we're not in fellowship, actually. You're excommunicated. I'm not eating with you. I'm not going to treat you like a believer. I'm actually leaving in order to impress on you the danger of your spiritual condition. Not because I want to destroy you, and not even because there's no hope for you. God just healed your hand, reminding you that there is hope. But I'm going with the implied invitation 
that when you repent, we would be able to eat and drink together again. And so Jeroboam is faced with this combination of judgment and grace that is so wonderfully summarized in this excommunication. What will he do with that? Well, we have to wait till the end of the chapter to find out. In the meantime, there's another narrative about this prophet. Uh, This prophet is on his way back to Judah. But there was another prophet, uh, a northern kingdom false prophet. So the, the man of God who we initially met is a true prophet from the southern kingdom, Judah, which was faithful to God and to Solomon's royal house. The false prophet that we meet, well, he dwelled in Bethel, in the northern kingdom. And his sons were actually at the idolatrous worship service. So that gives us a little clue as to what this prophet is up to. Jeroboam never got any trouble from that prophet. He was completely fine with having prophets like that in his kingdom. He's the kind of prophet kings like to have around when they're sinning. So it leads us to believe he's a, he's a false prophet. And um, the, uh, the man of God is on his way back, and uh, the, the false prophet hears about this whole thing, and he, he says, oh, I'm going to go and see if I can find this, this, this prophet and talk to him. And he finds him uh, on his way back, sitting under an oak tree. Verse 14, he was sitting under an oak tree on the way back to Judah. Now, you've got to wonder. Remember, Jonah was another prophet who is a kind of mixture of good and bad, and we find him sitting under a gourd out in the desert. And here's a prophet, and we've got to wonder, why exactly is he sitting under an oak tree? It's especially significant that he's just a couple miles from the border of the southern kingdom here. He's lingering. There's something weird going on. He's not just walking back. He's taking a break. But any of you who have been on a road trip know you don't take a break when you're like a mile and a half from your destination. That's not the time you do it. You take it earlier when you need it. When you're just a mile and a half, you tell the kids, no, be quiet. We're getting to grandma's in 10 minutes. We're just going to get there. But this prophet is lingering. He's sitting under an oak tree only a mile or two from his destination. Why is he doing that? Well, uh, we we don't know for sure, but the narrative goes on to tell us a little bit more. This false prophet comes to him and invites him to eat and drink. That's verse 16. And uh, the true prophet, in verse 17, gives him the same answer. You know, he'd shown such courage in telling King Jeroboam this answer, and now he shows similar clarity. The Lord told me not to eat bread or drink water, and and that's that. You know, and we're, we're heartened by this prophet's courage and steadfastness. But then the false prophet tries a different tactic, and he says, verse 18, you know, I'm a prophet too, you know. Uh, my, I, I got my badge here somewhere. It's, I can't remember where I left it. I've got the paperwork. You know, I'm credentialed. I've been ordained, you know, maybe something like that. We don't know exactly what it was. But the point is he's, he's appealing to a different type of authority than Jeroboam had. Jeroboam had the civil authority of a, of a, of a, a king. And this prophet is, is appealing to, the, you know, I went to a good seminary. I I, I, I've had a long ministry, many years. People have appreciated my, my Bible studies. You know, I'm, I'm a prophet. I'm a prophet too, just like you are. Who are you to be so dogmatic about what God said? And uh, he says, actually, an angel uh, spoke to me the other day and said that you're supposed to do precisely the opposite of what God told you in the first place. <laughs> Isn't it? And um, this trap is actually harder for the prophet to deal with than the first trap. This is something I want to impress on you, that we need to be discerning as Christians. Uh, The Apostle John tells us not to believe every prophet. It's a direct command from Scripture. Don't believe every prophet. 
Um, kind of jarring when you think about that. That's in the Bible. Don't believe every word from God is the implication. Not because the words from God are not believable, but because not every word from God, so to speak, is really a word from God. Not every prophet is actually a prophet. Uh, Hebrews chapter 5 verse 14 tells us about a motto that I could write over your life as, as, a, 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 as, as one of your ministers. That would, be, that would be it, at least right now. That would be a motto. Your powers of discernment. People treat discernment as if it's easy. Just like look it up in a book somewhere and you'll get the right answer. But it's really not easy. Your powers of discernment trained by constant exercise. That's what it means to be a mature Christian. You're not gullible. You're not naive. Not just because someone walks in and says, Hi, I'm a Christian. I have this message from God. And then you just sort of switch off your brain and, and you keep listening. No, it's, it's hard actually to sort through the various words that claim to be from the Lord. And this prophet, he was forgetful. He fell for it. So we had a stubborn king and now we have a forgetful prophet. And uh, both of those are tragic betrayals of the place that God's word ought to have in our lives. The next character, of course, is this false prophet. He is not a careless prophet, but a lying prophet. Uh, We don't have a lot of information about why he did what he did, but we can make a few educated guesses, I think, that might be edifying for us to consider. Uh, One is, is he was almost certainly acting with a bad conscience. He seems to have had some regard for this fellow prophet of his. You know, he's a prophet in the north, this other guy's a prophet in the south. Both of them probably had lived through the recent rupture in the kingdom with the, the challenge that it posed to all Israelites. Will you be loyal to God's appointed royal house, the house of David, or will you follow the rebels? And if you follow the rebels, will you tolerate the idolatry on which that rebellious kingdom will be uh, founded? Or will you maintain a sort of dissident minority status within that northern kingdom of allegiance at least to the true worship of Jerusalem and its temple? That's the type of question that everybody had to sort through in those days. Which way will my loyalty lie? And if I happen to be living among the ungodly, at least will my loyalty, like for instance the loyalty of Elijah the prophet and his followers, will our loyalty be with the true God of Israel? This was a moment of crisis that everybody had to face these questions. This false prophet had clearly made his peace with the new status quo. I can find a ministry here. We can make it work. It's not all bad, actually. Those calves are there, but they're still talking about Yahweh. They still read Moses' books. Uh, They still remember the ministry of the judges. There's all these good things, you know, And, and actually people who sit in church, their intention spans are a little longer, and there's this sense of community that builds up around these golden calves, and there's just a lot of good things, and I can see myself fitting in there quite nicely. And then this false prophet sees a true prophet walking up to the front of the worship service and announcing God's judgment, and he understands. That judgment's aimed at me too. All my pretending, all my rationalizing, all my explaining, it's just a bunch of garbage, and I know it, and I'm not fooling God. That's probably an element of what's going on with that false prophet. The other thing, and this is um, important to understand, is that um, people who are engaged in sin, they, they like to be contagious. Sin actually loves to be contagious. It's like, you know, various viruses. <laughs> it, it, it's just contagious. It's contagious. It goes around. It's catching. And 
not only because of some mechanical thing about sin, but because of something about the hearts of sinners. We love to spread our sin to other people. And this false prophet saw a chance to corrupt another prophet. And you know, the Bible is so helpful here because so often one of the things that makes it difficult for Christians to be discerning is that we are very slow, and there's something good about this, we're rightfully very slow to attach false or bad motives to other professing Christians. You know, if I meet a professing Christian who is not willing to baptize their children, I don't typically begin the conversation with, well, why do you hate God? You know, because I assume, and I think rightly in most cases, that they're very sincere Christians. And, you know, we, we have a lot more in common than we disagree on. And that's right. And then, you know, there's people who are um, differing from me in, in more serious ways. Maybe they have different views on uh, the doctrine of salvation, for instance. And again, it's, it's important to remember the biblical duty to extend a judgment of charity, to think, you know, I'm not going to assume this person just hates the Bible. I'm going to assume, as best I can, that they're in error, they're confused, they're trying, and maybe one day the Lord will give them some light and clarity, right? But you know, that impulse is a good one that needs to be paired with another impulse. And that is a courageous clarity in confronting high-handed rebellion against God. And there are people who will take advantage of Christians' goodwill and good nature, who are, you know, you're a professing Christian, you go to this church and that church, and I, I see all the good in your ministry and this sort of thing. There are people who will take advantage of that goodwill in order to feed us lies. And that's why we need to be discerning. Because there will be people who deliberately take advantage of that judgment of charity that we extend to them. And this is where I say that the Bible is so helpful, because what's the Bible's explanation for this false prophet? It doesn't say he's confused. It doesn't say, poor guy, his mom didn't teach him the shorter catechism. It doesn't say, you know, he went to that, that church and there was, a, there was a split and everyone was so stressed out they didn't have time to pray or read the Bible for 10 years. So he, he's got some catching up to do. That's not the explanation. The explanation's great. He lied. That's the explanation. He lied. People do that sometimes. And sometimes people who are ministers lie. They just tell you a lie because they have something other than faithfulness to Christ at the root of their heart. They just are not trying to serve the Lord. They're aiming to serve themselves and ultimately their master Satan. One of the muscles that Christians are going to need to learn to exercise and flex, and this is especially those of us in ministry, so I'm looking at you, Ben, and you know, Michael and Jim. One of the things we need to train ourselves, and this is a word to the congregation too, as you recognize in your elders and ministers this quality, you should thank the Lord, and you should, this is one of the things you should pray for. The ability to accurately and clearly identify people who are lying. That's, that's a very important part of the ministry that God's entrusted. Fathers, this is true in your home. You can't just teach your children to assume the best of people. Now, they should assume the best wherever they can. Hope or love bears all things, we're told in 1 Corinthians 13. But love rejoices not with error, but only with the truth also. 
And one of the things that you need to grow in as a Christian and that we who have a ministry in the church need to grow in is our ability to deal with the people who are actually just lying. And there's not, there's not actually any other explanation for what they're doing. Um, it could be the people who are fundraising and they're telling you, as I heard one time of one of these charismatic uh, ministers who, who had just recently announced a successful fundraising campaign for his private jet. Okay, And um, it would cost more than, Lord willing, what your new church building will cost. So be encouraged. Uh, the jet's coming later. <laughs> yeah. You've got time. Interest rates will go back down. But they just finished this campaign for fundraising for this private jet. And you know what the next thing was? Um, now we're looking for a hangar. <laughs> that guy's lying. Just call it what it is. He's taking your money for some other purpose than the ministry that Christ has entrusted to his faithful shepherds. He's a liar. He's stealing. That's all that is. There's no other explanation. And people can get all sentimental about how the nice things the guy said in his sermons and stuff. But we, we need to be able to call sin, sin, right? Point is, that's not easy. And we need to pray for God's grace, both to extend charitable judgments and to precisely and courageously deal clearly with people's sin. So this is that lying prophet. Now, in order to bring the thrust of this chapter home to your heart, we need to do a couple things with the second half of the chapter. I want to point out to you God's severity to the true prophet. Something strange happens at lunch. The false prophet opens his mouth and gives a true word of prophecy to the true prophet. It's a little glimpse, by the way, into what prophecy is. Prophecy is not something that is subject to uh, our own human decisions. That's a special thing about prophecy that's not true, for instance, of the sermon I'm preaching to you today. I, I knew as best I could what text I would preach and what my points would be and that sort of thing. But if you're a prophet, you can never tell what God's going to give you to say. And God can, you know, the Spirit blows where he lists, John 3 tells us. And this is an, a good example of the sovereignty of the Holy Spirit in bringing words of prophecy. A false prophet gives a true word and says to the true prophet, you disobeyed, even though... The true prophet disobeyed because the false prophet earlier had lied to him. Now the true prophet, or the false prophet's giving a rebuke to the true prophet. And he's saying, you disobeyed and you're going to die. <laughs> wow. And sure enough, that's what happens. The true prophet's on his way home. He meets a lion. The lion kills him. And there's a little word for ordination Sunday. Okay, so Ben, here, here's an application for you. You know, all of you, seriously? Pray for the people whose job involves having lions meet them. That's one definition of being a, a, a minister or a spiritual leader. Is that it's the kind of job where, as James tells us, those who teach are judged more severely. And this is a good example. Not everyone in the Bible who sins in the way that this, false, this true prophet sinned, not everybody gets a lion on the way home. But this guy did. And I have to say, in preparing to preach this myself, is a really humbling thing to think. You know, all the errors of exegesis and sins that I've committed in the pulpit that have deserved a lion, and God's very gracious. That's one, one reason that you should, you should be um, maybe patient with those who preach God's word is, hey, you know, we're just trying not to get eaten by lions, actually. You know, we have, we have many faults and many weaknesses, but a faithful ministry 
even with many weaknesses and limitations, a faithful ministry that doesn't involve in end in judgment is, is a, great, a great blessing from the Lord. Even just sheer faithfulness, unadorned with special gifts or achievements. Not getting eaten by a lion is a great thing. Now, I, I think we should see this not as a punishment for sin, but as a severe correction to a true Christian. I think this prophet was really a true prophet, a true Christian, a converted and Christ-believing, Christ-trusting, gospel-trusting man. And uh, just like in 1 Corinthians, God says that some of you have died because of your sins at the Lord's Supper. In, in a similar way, this, this man met with God's severe chastisement, but it was a, a difficult road for, to heaven for him. The question turns to the, the other prophet. So there was God's severity to the true prophet, but how did God treat the other prophet, the false prophet? And here, strangely, we see God's grace. It's an amazing thing. The true prophet gets a lion. The false prophet gets God's grace. He got to learn from the other man's example. Look at verse 26, where the, tr- the false prophet prophet uh, processes what's happened. It is the man of God who was disobedient to the word of the Lord. He puts his finger right on it. He sees exactly what's going on, and he can tell the implications for himself. Quite a sermon. Then he actually uses the death of this true prophet as an occasion to show love and good works because he gets his sons to saddle the donkey, he rides the donkey down the road, he finds the corpse, and by the way, there's something special about this because the lion didn't actually eat his prey. He just stood there watching it with the donkey. I mean, what a sight. Everyone walking past and thinking, it's a donkey and a lion, it's like we're in a zoo, except there's a dead guy right in front of him. This is very strange. Clearly, a supernatural act of God is the point. And the false prophet, he doesn't miss the point. And he, he rides down there, he sees the whole thing, and he shows what love he can to a dead fellow believer. What love he can show is simply to pick up the body and bury him in his own tomb. Foreshadowing a little bit, isn't he? The love that was shown to another prophet who had died. Now, that love and good works was clearly coming from a heart of faith because of what happens next. Where he tells his sons, verse 31, When I am dead, bury me in the tomb where the man of God is buried. Lay my bones beside his bones. Now, where else in Scripture do we have people giving instruction about where to lay their bones? It's always in the context of expressing their faith in God's promise for the resurrection. Joseph, Jacob, on and on. And here is this man saying, look, my, my faith now, I see, I see what's going on. I see that both that true prophet and I are subject to the authority of God. We are both under God's judgment. I deserve what that guy got. He can have my tomb, and then I'll have the honor of sharing it with him. And together, as our catechism puts it, our bodies can lie still united to Christ, waiting for the day of resurrection. That's the grace that that false prophet received. His life was really turned around. Notice the great contrast with the king. And here we come to the very end of the chapter, where we find this sad coda. Jeroboam did not turn from his evil way. And that, I believe, is the message of this chapter. Turn from your evil way. There is none of you so sinful that you're more sinful than that false prophet. 
so that you can say, look, I can't even turn. God hasn't given me an opportunity to turn. There's no repentance available to me. There's no hope. Even Jeroboam had his hand restored. There is hope. And even that false prophet got to have his bones buried in the hope of the resurrection. You can, you can turn. Turn from your evil way. Go ahead and turn. Christ will have you. He is not less gracious today than he was in 1 Kings 13. He will take you. He'll forgive your sin. There's a terrible warning here, too, that the occasions that you have for turning, if you do not take them, are actually new forms of judgment on you. And that's what happened to Jeroboam. The end of the chapter says that Jeroboam not only didn't turn, but he he kept going. And one of the ways he expressed his idolatry was by uh, ordaining just anyone who wanted to be a priest. He said, okay, we'll have you. Go ahead. No regard to any scriptural requirements or anything like that. And, And it says here in verse 34 that this was all the sin of the house of Jeroboam so as to exterminate and destroy it from the face of the earth. The beginning of the chapter, there was hope for Jeroboam. The end of the chapter, there really isn't. Throughout the whole chapter, Jeroboam had despised God's law, but it's only at the end of the chapter that he has looked God's grace in the eye and spat in it. And it was to exterminate the house of Jeroboam from the face of the earth. That's a very serious warning. That it's one thing to trample underfoot God's law. It's another to trample underfoot the blood of the Son of God. So repent. Turn from your evil way. You're welcome. And the fact that you're hearing from 1 Kings 13 this morning is evidence that you're welcome. One last comment I'd like to make, and that is, there is coming... From the perspective of 1 Kings 13, there is coming a day when a prophet will restore true worship. When all the priests and all the kings will meet their match in a great prophet who will die not for his disobedience, but actually for his obedience, who will be buried in a stranger's tomb and will offer to hardened and unrepentant sinners a grace that nobody could have ever expected. That both the flock he already had, and those who had left and wandered far from the flock of Israel would be gathered together in the hope that if we are buried with him in a death like his, we would also be raised with him in a resurrection like his. And that same grace that these men experienced so long ago is the grace that is yours and mine in Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, We ask your help and blessing, not only to hear, but to believe. Not only to believe, but to obey and cherish and embrace this message of grace, mercy, forgiveness, and warning. Lord, we ask that you would give us the great hope that one day, with all the saints, we would enter into the immortality that Jesus Christ already has. We ask that you would give this to us in your mercy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to find out more about our church, you can visit our website at newcovenantopc.com. You can also follow us on YouTube, Facebook, and Instagram. If you've benefited from this ministry and want to know of ways you can help or support it, we'd like to make you aware of our new capital campaign to build a new building. God has recently blessed us with growth 
here at New Covenant. Over the years, our church has been small. It's gone up and down, but overall things have been tight financially and the church has been small. Now, by the grace of God, we are growing. We believe it wise in light of this to think about building a new building to facilitate even more growth. Our current building only seats 72. We cannot fit any more seats, and if we were to fill every single one, every Lord's Day we would have no more than 72. The plans for our new building would more than double the capacity and enable us to grow to a point where we can be stable financially and even be able to help other churches. One of the things that we want to, to be is a church that is able to look beyond itself for the sake of the advancement of the kingdom of God. We believe that this new building can help us get there. And so we are praying that God would provide for us the funds needed to build a new building, that we would grow to fill it, and that one day we would even be able to plant a church ourselves. As you know, doing ministry here in the Bay Area, this is a very dark place. Uh, there is a great need for the light of the gospel to shine, particularly in this place through the preaching of the word. And so if you want to support us and to, to support our efforts to see this new building built, please consider giving a financial gift to this end. You can give by sending us a check with building fund in the memo line. Our address can be found on our website. You can also give by Zelle by sending the money to nc.opcssf.treasurer at gmail.com with building fund in the memo line. May God bless you with a greater knowledge of his word and zeal for his name.